Well, this morning we're starting uh, our Christmas series. Um, if you uh, saw the slide this week and last week, um, it's, the series is called Among Us, uh, and we're going to be looking at kind of the, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's kind of going to be our focus over these next four weeks. So this week, as we prepare for Christmas, we're, we're going to start in John chapter 1. We're going to be spending time trying to better understand the concept of the Incarnation and what that means for the Christmas season. We're actually going to be spending all four weeks in John chapter 1 in, in, in varying spots as we look at this passage and this concept. But this week, we're going to look at verses 1 to 5. John 1, 1 to 5. Now, John is making a, a profound assertion at the very start of his gospel. He's saying that since the very beginning of time, and even before time, there was a being in existence known as the Word. And that this being not only was with God, but was God. And this Word, as we'll see a few verses later down in verse 14, is the only Son of God, Jesus. Further Furthering to bolster his message, John uses language that parallels the story of creation in Genesis 1.1. So as, we open, as John opens his gospel, Matthew starts with genealogies, while Mark brings Jesus onto the scene as a full-grown man bursting into his ministry. Luke talks about his research methodologies as he prepares his book. But John begins by informing us that Jesus is God. And that is a major theme for his book. So we're going to get started this morning. We're going to start right off in verses 1 and 2. John 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was was God. He was in the beginning with God. So our first major point here in verses 1 and 2, we see the Word and God. The Word and God. Now, if you're using your outline, that's going to be point one there. I actually have three little subpoints under under point one here. And the first one is that he is co-eternal. John's stressing here at the very beginning that the Word is co-eternal with God. Now, he begins his account paralleling the opening of Genesis 1. In the beginning. So the word beginning here draws our minds, our attention back to Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's likely John's intent. But there's more that John is wanting to get across here to his readers. While the end of the beginning takes us back to the creation account, in the beginning, God. But here John tells us about another distinct personality. He says, in the beginning was the word. John says that the word was in the beginning. Now, this was not implying that the word was created at or before creation, but was already in existence at creation. And as we'll see in verse three, was 
expressly active in creation. The verb was in that, in that clause, in the beginning, was the word. Is, that word is found in the imperfect sense. This gives us the idea of an action or a state of being from the past that has either not been completed or is ongoing. Using this, this implies that in the beginning, it implies the eternality of the word. So not just at creation, but way before creation. Now, John is saying in the beginning was the word. And we see this title used two more times in this, path, in this verse. Uh, and before we get much, too much further in here, we need to understand what John is doing with the term the word and understanding what he has behind it. This is a title for Christ, as we're seeing here, but it's a title for Christ that is unique to John's writings. It is found three times in verse 1 of John 1. It's found again in verse 14 of John 1. And then John uses it in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. And it's used again in Revelation chapter 19, verse 13. Again, as a unique title for Christ. And John is the author of all of these accounts. So we see that this is a unique title for Christ within John's writings. But the Greek word that he is using, the Greek term he's using is logos or logos. Now this term has a long history in Greek language and philosophy. The term, this term is generally denotes a, a faculty of reason or thought and can mean speech or word. And speech or words are the expression of thought. Now around the first century, around the time John was writing this, philosophically, logos was used more abstractly as reason. That was the term that was used in, a, in this abstract concept of reason within Greek philosophy. And there was little to no understanding of that happening as a personal being. So John was using this in, a, in kind of a unique way. But there's also a little bit of a Jewish understanding to what he's doing here. In the Old Testament, there is a number of passages that show God acting by his word. Genesis 1, 3. God said, let there be light. We see that throughout the Genesis account in Genesis 1. We see that reflected in Psalm 33, verse 6. We also see in the Old Testament that his word is seen semi-personally as his agent or messenger. This is reflected in some passages like Psalm 107, verse 20, or 147, verse 15. God sent his word, or God's word went forth. It's seen almost in the semi-personal uh, way as being an active agent or messenger. 
Now, I'm not saying that all of these are trying to personify Christ, but we see kind of a Jewish understanding of, his, of God's word being active and being sent. There's also a, a unique tie here. In the Aramaic translations of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, a lot of times the Aramaic term that would be translated word was substituted for the personal name of God, likely to avoid violating the third commandment. Take, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Because you'll remember there's a Jewish understanding that when you come across the personal name, you don't read Yahweh, you read Adonai. You don't say, you don't read Yahweh, you read Lord. And that seems to have carried over in the Aramaic translations of the Old Testament scriptures by substituting the term word for the name, for the personal name of God. Even the Jewish philosopher Philo or Philo used the term logos over 1300 times in his writings, primarily in this abstract form of reason or as divine intelligence. Though we do understand that he was likely highly influenced by Greek philosophy. So John's use of logos here then would have enabled both Jewish and Greek readers to begin to understand his concepts here and what his point is. They should at the very least understood that the word that as words are the expression of thought so to call Christ the word was to regard him as communication of divine wisdom the personal revelation of the truth of God but Christ wasn't just the communicator of truth he was the communication itself not just telling the truth but he was the truth, John 14, 6. So, in that first section there, in the beginning was the word, we see that the word, we see that Christ is co-eternal with God, existing before time, before creation. We move on to the next clause here, a distinct person and the word was with God. So now that we've kind of established the word being co-eternal, John moves forward and say that the word was with God. We see a distinction between the word and God. He is with God. Now, while that preposition that we have here with is generally translated to be to or towards one of its meanings is by or at, near, to be understood as being in the presence of, even being face to face with. The word is used in that way, just as an example, in Matthew 13, verse 56, and Mark chapter 6, verse 3. And those accounts are of other people saying, wait, is this not the carpenter's son? Are his brothers and sisters not with us? Are they not in our presence? 
So we're not spending a lot of time on, on this clause, but the, the distinction here is that we're seeing a distinction, one of personality. There is God that we're understanding as God the Father and the Word, distinct persons. But we're not saying a distinction in essence. And this brings us to, to the third part of the verse, one essence. And the Word was God. This clause is one of the most, if not the most, clear and definite statements of the deity of Jesus Christ in Scripture. <clears throat> However, there have been false teachers and other groups that have been twisting John's words almost since he penned them. Some have argued that since the word God, theos, comes first in the clause in the Greek and doesn't have the definite article, the, then John wasn't equating the word with God. They weren't, he wasn't making them equal. And that it should be translated as the word was divine. Understanding that it's not speaking about a God or the God, but just divinity. Deity, that the word was divine. Others, like the, Jeho the Jehovah Witnesses in their New World Translation, add to this verse the English indefinite article to into the clause. Now we have to do this occasionally because in English we have an indefinite article and Greek doesn't. They only have the definite article. But the New World Translation adds the indefinite article into this clause, rendering it, and the word was a God. And they do that to help validate their claim that, that Jesus was a God, but not the Father God. However... The grammar of this verse doesn't back up these arguments. I don't want to get too technical here, but we need to work through some of this. The grammar doesn't back up these ideas. The, the term theos, God, is placed earlier in the clause to show emphasis. This is done all the time in Greek writing. Something that's got a stronger emphasis is usually put towards the head of the clause, even before the subject and verb. And then we have uh, uh, the term the word, a logos here. Now that term does carry the definite article in this clause, but that's because it's the subject of the verb, was. And here's where it can get a little technical here. Theos and word, logos, are in the same grammatical case. God doesn't have the article, not just because it's in a place of emphasis, but because it's not the subject. Logos is the subject. It carries the article. Theos isn't the subject of the clause. 
It's in a place of emphasis, but it, because they are in the same case, it doesn't carry the article. Accordingly, in Greek, the predicate nominative, and that's how theos is working, become, when, it, it, when, it becomes, when it comes before the verb in the clause, it cannot carry, sorry, it cannot be an indefinite article, even if it is without the article. Because the, the, the grammatical sense of how theos is operating as the predicate nominative, and if you think back to English grammar, a predicate nominative is a noun that identifies or renames the subject because it's coming before the verb, it can't be indefinite, even if it doesn't carry the article. I know that's getting a little technical with the grammar, but I've got to explain how this is working. To, to add to this, there are four other uses in this passage in John chapter 1 where the term theos appears without the article and no one, not even the New World Translation, renders it as a god. <coughs> Granted, it's used in slightly different ways, but in verse 6, verse 12, verse 13, and verse 18, Theos appears without the article, and nobody translates it as a god. The understanding is God. So John declares in this sentence that the word not only is eternal, going beyond the beginning of creation, not only in the, was not only in the presence of God, but was also God. Not just a distinct person, but the same essence as God the Father. This verse has been used for generations as an understanding and explanation of the truth of the unity of the Godhead, especially of Christ as God the Son. Because how do we define the Trinity or the, the triunity of the Godhead? That God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Though they are three persons, they are co-equal in eternality, in essence, and in power. And that's just verse 1. Now as we move into verse 2, John writes, He was in the beginning with God. Now the he obviously relates back to word, and he says he was in the beginning with God. Now verse 2 isn't a repetition of everything he just said. It's actually a bit more of a summary and even a clarification, if you will. Here John shows that the word did not become God, or even come to be, but that he was with God in the beginning. So that's, the, that's John's opening. As you can see, that's a really big difference between the other three Gospels. 
He argues from the very beginning that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, this carries us into verse 3, and his explanation continues. His argument continues. Uh, Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. So here we have the word at creation. The word at creation. Not going to take a whole lot of time here. Um, it, it, we're just going to kind of break this in half and take a look at it kind of quickly here. All things were made through him. If we weren't clear before, John now points out that the word, Christ, was not only with the Father from eternity, but was also active in creation. This verse says essentially the same thing two different ways. The first part of the verse states Christ's creative work positively. All things were made through him. While the second half of the verse restates it negatively to emphasize the point. Without him, nothing was made that was made. So everything was made through him. And all these things that were made, if without Christ, nothing was made. So John very plainly states that Christ was involved in creation. Now most hold that all members of the Godheads were involved in creation. Genesis 1 says God said, and at the same time, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we see that all, we, we have an understanding that all three members of the Godhead were involved in creation in some, some way. But John is very specifically saying here that Christ was very specifically, expressly involved. Now, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 tells us that the Father is the ultimate source of creation. It says, of whom are all things. The same verse though, tells us that creation happened through Christ. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. So John, so if we take, if we understand 1 Corinthians 8, 6 to tell us that the Father is the ultimate source of creation, but Christ, that creation happened through Christ, we can understand here that John 1, 3 is telling us the, kind of the same thing here. It says that all things were made through him. Christ was expressly involved in creation. Paul also tells us in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, that not only did Christ create all things, but in him all things consist. Another translation puts that phrase as, and by him, all things hold together. Christ is holding creation together. Everything that was created was created by Christ. So it should be clear to us now that he wasn't created, but the creator. 
This takes us into verses four and five. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So verse, uh, so point three here, the word is life and light, verses four and five. Now, while there's, verse four is, is taken most of the time uh, and almost restricted to new life uh, and rebirth and, and uh, uh, salvation, the new birth and salvation. And I think that's correct. And I see some of that here too. But coming off of this verse of creation, as, as understanding Christ as creator, I think there's a little bit more to the verse here. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The first part of this verse indicates partly the self-existence of the word and may be implying a life-giving ability through the word. So we seem to be seeing here in him was life. This, this seems to be indicating that the word shares in that same self-existing life that the father has. But we also see in the life was the light of men. That we also see here this maybe impl- this implying of a life-giving ability by the word. Now there's a similar statement, similar phrasing in first or excuse me, in John 5 verses 19 to 29. In that section, Jesus explains that he shares the self-existence life, self-existent life by the good pleasure of the Father. And because the Father and the Son share this self-existence, the Son is able to impart life to others. Where we've gone from God word in John 1, we now see Father Son in John 5. So here we not only see that the word is living, but that he is the source of life. All people contain some form of life from their creator. So Christ is the life giver. First and foremost, as creator, he gave physical life to humanity. As redeemer, he gives spiritual life. And as savior, he gives eternal life. Now the rest of this clause, the, the life that was in the word, uh, the life was the light of men. So this life that is in the word is the light of men. Now this is true of physical life as much as it is for spiritual life. Because even in just physical life, all people have this natural illumination of, in the human mind, of reason and conscience. Paul argues the same thing in, in Romans 1. But because of sin, that reason and conscience, that light, if you will, is dimmed. But the word also gives spiritual illumination when it comes to the new birth of a believer. It is likely that John's intention here uh, is a little bit more of the spiritual illumination 
since this is what dispels the darkness of sin and disbelief or unbelief. This brings us to the next clause, and the light shines in the darkness. Without the light that comes from the word, the world is shrouded by, dark, by the darkness of sin. Now, this concept of light and dark being used for good and evil, truth and falsehood, holiness and sin is seen throughout Scripture, and it was a common understanding in the culture as well. But we also see, as, we, as you were, were to move through the book of John, we see that Jesus refers to himself as light several times. John 8, verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 5. Chapter 12, verses 35, 36, and 46. We see these concepts of life and light that John brings out here in verses 4 and 5, and he carries them through the entire book. It is the light of Christ that banishes the darkness of sin in the new creation of a believer. And this last phrase here in verse 5, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, in the King James and New King James, even the New American Standard, translates that word there as comprehend. And that's a completely accurate and, and proper translation of that word. And a very plausible rendering of it for, for this verse. However, others believe that it should be translated as overcome or overcame, did not overcome it. And this is another completely accurate and correct translation of this word. I think that translation works better here because it's not about whether the darkness understood the light but it demonstrates that the sin of humanity and, this, and Satan's forces were hostile to Christ being in the world, that the darkness was hostile to the light. <clears throat> because as we've seen, as we've been going through Mark, Satan's forces knew exactly who Christ was while he was on earth. We've gone through a number of times already in, in the early section of Mark where he comes across someone who's demon-possessed and they cry out, what are you doing here, son of God? I know who you are. And what does he do? He quiets them. They know exactly who he was. And while sin may blind the unbeliever, it doesn't overcome the light. Because while light and darkness are opposites, they're not equal in power. The commentator F.F. F. Bruce makes this statement. This is true of ordinary light. A little candle can dispel a room full of darkness and not be dimmed by it. Light and darkness are opposites, but they are not opposites of equal power. Light is stronger than darkness. Darkness cannot prevail against it. The lie is thus given to those dualist systems which envisage light and darkness as equally and eternally opposed to each other. 
So you have this constant struggle between light and dark. No, if you think about it, what his, his point is with the little candle is that light is stronger. Think about a pitch black room and you strike a match. There's a lot more power in that light on the match. The darkness can't dim it. The only thing that can dim it is a lack of fuel. Darkness isn't overcoming the light. The light is stronger. The light of the world has not been overcome by darkness, despite the hostility of the darkness. 1 John 2.8 says the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. These five verses are still very important to understanding Christianity and Christ. For those who sit on the fence when it comes to the divinity of Jesus Christ, it is important to understand the case John is making here. There is no beating around the bush or this or, or trying to explain the meaning away. John is being very clear and it is clear that those who do not believe in the divinity of Jesus have to twist these verses to support their point of view, like the New World Translation. I'm not trying to bash that translation, but I'm pointing out an element of error in their doctrine. John begins his gospel by presenting us with such a strong assertion that we are forced to make a choice. Do we believe that the word became flesh, that he was God or not? At the end of the book, John puts in I wasn't planning on doing this. Now I'm not, not going to find the verse. Oh, here. At the end of the book, John 20, verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in, these, in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John begins his argument back in chapter 1. The word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then at the end of after we've, seen, after we've seen the rest of his presentation of Christ as he's gone through all of life and the light of bringing through this, he comes to the resurrected Christ and says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So John makes a very clear and we are forced to make a choice. Is the word that became flesh, God or not? And this question is still worth dealing with as we prepare for the Christmas season. Because just in a few weeks, the Christmas will be upon us. And I'm sure most of us 
are probably already beginning to decorate, making plans for to see shows, spend time with family, do some shopping, planning meals. But what is all that for? Is it just cultural tradition that we have bought into? And there's nothing wrong with any of those. Don't misunderstand that. Or is there something deeper about the season beneath the lights and the wrappings and the shows and all everything else? That the God who entered our world and took on flesh for the sake of our salvation. This is the choice John gives us. And it's why these five verses are still relevant and so important. Just like the hymn that we sang this morning, both hymns that we sang this morning. O come all ye faithful, yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus to thee be all glory given, word of the Father now in flesh appearing. Hark the herald angels sing, God in or the incarnate deity. Both of these hymns proclaim these truths. In this passage, we see the deity of Jesus, and not just deity, but that he is the second member of the Godhead, co-equal in eternality, power, and essence, yet distinct as a person. We see that Christ was active in creation and the one to give life, not just our physical life, which brings the unique light of human reason apart from the rest of creation, but he brings spiritual life to those who believe. So this Christmas season is a time to remember that God the Son stepped into humanity by becoming the God-man, God incarnate. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Let's have a, let's close with a brief word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the important truths we have in this word and the importance of understanding what we have here. To remember that Christ stepped into our world. He became the one and only God-man. Adding to his deity the uniqueness of humanity. Veiling his deity in human form And that as such, he died on the cross for our sins. Help us to remember why we as a church body, why we as believers in Jesus Christ celebrate Christmas. And while the traditional things of, of trees and decorations and, and meals and everything else and gifts are appropriate and, and fun, they're not what's important. Help us to remember the importance of what Christmas represents. That not only did Christ step into humanity, 
but he started as an infant. He started as a baby, and we celebrate that birth this time of year as we move forward to remember the great sacrifice for our salvation. Father, we thank you for what we've been able to study today, to what we've been able to be reminded of. I pray, Father, that we better understand this passage so that we can better understand and worship you and to better live as disciples as we seek to be Christ-like. Father, as we prepare to uh, end our service this morning, I pray that you would uh, take this message, put these verses in the back of our minds, help us to meditate on on them throughout the week as we go through this time. Father, we thank you, we love you, and we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.